back to MFA Writers. Today on our final episode of Season 3, we're taking a look at Western Michigan University, which was requested by Jared Kubakawa. Thank you to my fellow Jared and everyone else for listening this year. Together we are building a community of emerging writers and sharing much-needed information with MFA applicants and current students alike. Thank you so much for being a part of it. I'll be back in a few weeks for the first episode of Season 4. See you then. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms, or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Amanda E. Scott. Originally from Houston, Amanda is a Latinx writer currently pursuing a PhD in fiction at Western Michigan University, where she serves as editor-in-chief of Third Coast Magazine. She is also co-founder and assistant executive editor of Porterhouse Review, and her writing has been published in Crab Orchard Review, Gulf Coast, Had, Hayden's Ferry Review, New South, and elsewhere. Today, Amanda is going to read a piece titled, A Filling Station, A Falling Stallion. On Wednesdays, you pull on a neon sports bra and leggings to see your personal trainer, Paul. For one hour... Paul invites you to reimagine your body, to see it as not a body, but a machine. Together, you track calories, correct the imbalances in your limbs, work on building muscle mass, and soon your physiological vocabulary evolves into an intimate repository for movement, shape, and manipulation. You learn to trust the stillness of walls and floors, the precision of the proportions, your relationship to pain changes. Between reps, you lie on the gym mat, feeling your weight roll out like a wave across the sticky vinyl, isolating the heavy breathing of men around you, their shadows a reminder that you will always glow pink. After each session, you return home and fall onto your couch, burrowing into its softer center, trying to get your body stuck. You crave an impression, want to feel your life like a pulse that will never stop. Once you misread the title of an Elizabeth Bishop poem, Falling Stallion Instead of Filling Station, and you haven't been able to forget that falling stallion since. You do dead bugs. Paul crouches next to you with his palm across your belly like he's ready to conduct a seance. You wonder if he can feel the ghosts inside you, can excise them from the home they've built in the cave of your pelvis. You hold your core steady, driving its tight cluster of muscle into the mat, trying to emulate a petrified dead thing, 
Freshman summer of high school, you exercised every day in your living room, cutting your diet down to Special K for three months. You lost five pounds and weighed below a hundred by August, and you thought that was beautiful. Years later, and twenty pounds heavier, you watch as the sharp points of your hip bones jet into the air, carving you out of the dark as your partner coils his body around yours, and you have to look away because there is no light. You do push-ups and planks. Paul rests his hand on the fold where your spine forms a narrow bayou along your back. You imagine his palm pressing through the skin, reaching into the wetness of your insides, curious about what he might find. Before this all started, you remember the look on Paul's face at your consultation, and you wonder if that was the moment he knew he couldn't help you. Your body breaks and you fall. You need to eat more, your mother says in her closet as you finger her blouses. When you refuse the ones she's tried to force you to take, you ask her to make you a grilled cheese instead. She sits and watches you eat until the sandwich disappears and you remember the day just the other week when you sobbed in your bathtub as you tried to stuff a turkey sandwich down your throat. You held your mouth open but kept crying, the bread going soggy in your palm, your communion taken in vain because of course you were always the body and the blood. Your crying became laughter as you balled up a piece of crust, tossed it into your mouth and thought, I too can be a filling station. The next time you see Paul, it's time to check your progress. You stand barefoot on the body scanner with your arms outstretched as it reads the softest parts of you, your organs and tissue a collection of gray matter, your heart lost in the crosshatch of vein and rib bone, and you finally see yourself for the first time. But besides bone, most of you is missing because your body has always been a ruin. Today, the apricots blushed against the glass bowl at the center of your kitchen but you did not touch them. You try to think back to the beginning, when it started, but you can't remember. Creation, after all, was always a myth. Amanda, that was awesome. Thank you so much for reading that. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Jared. I'm so appreciative of this opportunity, and I'm really excited to talk with you today. I'm really excited to have you here. I don't know if we mentioned that piece, I believe, is the one that you published at HAD, right? Correct. Yeah, I was really excited to to get a piece uh, placed there. And I'm a big fan of Had. And, you know, I love just a lot of flash pieces, you know, whether it's fiction or nonfiction and a lot of hybrid works. I feel like they really cater to the kind of writing that I, I love to write and also read. Yeah, I love most of the stuff that Aaron Birch publishes over there. So I'm always excited to go over there and see what the next thing is that's popping up. So I was really excited to see that this was a piece that you had published there. I, I love this piece. Um, I was I was glad you decided to read it. Thank you. It was great to have an opportunity to just, you know, revisit it um, after having taken a break from, you know, some of the pieces that I've published or, you know, just pieces that we write or generate over the years and, you know, don't often maybe return to right. enough to just like revisit that old self, you know, and, yeah. and say hello again. Yeah. <laughs> well, to start this interview, we're going to revisit your old self and talk about growing up in Houston, Texas, which has become one of the more culturally diverse cities in the U.S. And you told me that this diversity played a big role in the development of your multifaceted creative interests. So tell us about growing up in Houston and how it affected your creative path. 
Yeah, well, I think for one, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the heat, you know, so when it's <laughs> when it's pretty hot out, I think you tend to find ways to stay inside. Um, and so I think I from a young age, I did a lot of reading. Um, and I think that eventually turned into writing. And I think just being in a city that thrives um, and encourages the arts is really amazing. Um, so there's a, a really great museum scene. There's a really great literary scene. Um, and I think I also have to mention my dad, who's not originally from Texas, but relocated. And um, he's an artist, he's a mu- musician and a painter. And I think being in Houston uh, really served him in his craft. And so that was definitely a big influence on me uh, from a pretty early age, you know, both via the city and its cultural diversity, its creative diversity, but also, you know, having the special way, way in which I was able to plug into it via my dad as this like New England expat <laughs> suddenly living, you know, in, in Texas. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, those are all some of those connective threads that have shaped my relationship to Houston uh, as my hometown, but also I think really as like the starting point for my creative life. Your mom also is from somewhere else. And I'm curious to hear in what ways you think your parents' backgrounds and family histories have influenced your own unique identity. Yeah. So like I mentioned, my dad, uh, he moved to Texas from uh, Connecticut. Uh, He also grew up in upstate New York. So uh, he's coming from, you know, a bit more of a colder climate and (laughs) a different sort of cultural sensibility. Um, And he comes from a very artistic family. Uh, My grandfather was a professor of English. And so I think my dad and his brothers and sisters all learned um, to sort of embrace the arts um, from an early age. My grandmother was also an artist and um, pianist. So a very artsy family. (laughs) Um, And then my mother's side uh, hails from Mexico and also the borderlands um, along the U.S.-Mexico border. So the Rio Grande Valley specifically is uh, a place that's near and dear to my heart because I grew up visiting the valley a lot and um, really becoming attached to my mother's family because I was closer to them. So I grew up hearing a lot of Spanish and just sort of being plugged into that cultural realm in ways that unfortunately I wasn't always plugged into on my father's side because they, they live much further away. So I think because of that bifurcated background, I think one of my writerly motivations has always been to bridge those two parts of myself. Um, and I, I definitely get a lot from both, from both ends of the spectrum, you know, both my father's side and my mother's side, I think supply really interesting, um, questions of identity that I've had to wrestle with over time and and still do. I think that's always going to be something that I try to parse out because sometimes they feel so different that, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm starting at square one to understand, like, how did the, how did these two people come together in Houston, Texas? And then what does that mean for me? And so then you go on this search to figure out your family lineage and, and then you start to realize all these interesting characters that exist in your family. So 
um, yeah, I think that it's been a, an interesting journey to say the least. I mean, having that kind of bifurcated background, like you said, um, and trying to bridge that gap, in what ways do you think writing aids in trying to gain understanding and bridge that gap? Yeah, I think for me, um, I've always been drawn to prose. And so that's always been my access point. Recently, I've been writing a lot of nonfiction. And I think that I've been drawn to both nonfiction and fiction that has been written by authors who are wrestling with a lot of those same questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Often, the writers that I've been influenced by are coming from larger multi-generational families that also have complex racial and ethnic histories. So I think that the long form <laughs> has served me well because I feel like I'm I'm on this like longer search and so those genres feel really well suited for that. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I I can like turn a problem over in my head and I can talk about it over and over, but something about writing clarifies things for me like I'll learn things about myself once I start putting the words on the page. Maybe working in those longer forms aids you in that. I don't know, like having more space to kind of dive in and see what happens. Certainly. Yeah. And I think my writing process, I wish that it um, took a more linear trajectory, but I tend to be someone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, I so admire those writers and artists that have like a vision and they can just follow through with it. Yeah, They can follow that outline. I wish I were more of an outline person. I can start with one, but then my brain just (laughs) takes me somewhere else. And I eventually end up with something I'm happy with. And I, I'm thankful for the, the roundabout journey I'm on. But, um, yeah, I think that I, I really love, uh, hybrid forms and fragmented forms. I think like the piece that I read today kind of works in a fragmented structure. And I think that's a really good example of how even in longer, works that I pursue, I'm still kind of working in this fragmented approach that eventually becomes a bit more linear. But I think I just sort of need to let my my brain and maybe my soul to some degree take me where it needs to go. And then I eventually find, um, you know, some logic and some reason for for all the mess on the page. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you've written fiction, you've written nonfiction, which I always find to be like an interesting thing to talk about because we want to keep them separate, right? Like it seems like people want to keep them separate. We want to talk about them as separate things. But if you let them, they'll become more hybrid, like you mentioned, right? Definitely. Yeah, I'm currently working on a novel that's fairly autobiographical in many ways. Um, but I think that genre has allowed me to, you know, revisit like scenes in my past and also kind of speculate uh, around those real world events or those yeah. real events from my life and sort of fictionalize in ways that are probably a bit more satisfying or a bit more dramatically satisfying for the reader. Um, and then I think in my nonfiction, it, it's similar, I think, in that, of course, I'm approaching questions about my life, you know, present and past and probably future. But I think there's a way in which I feel also less constricted. I feel like fairly free in the ways that I approach my nonfiction because I think I've reached a place 
in my writing life where I, I don't really feel the need to conceal as much. Um, whereas there may have been topics in the past I never would have explored. I think I'm much more willing to explore those areas of my life more openly rather than couch them in fiction because it feels like there's a way in which timing works where you kind of feel like, Oh, maybe you're ready to bridge that territory now. Um, and I think, you know, it is, I suppose a lot like therapy too. And that, you know, you sort of, you're doing a lot of this vulnerable work and I think you have to as a writer generally, but in nonfiction, I think you kind of have to ask yourself maybe a few more questions about whether you're ready to put something out into the, the public that may just feel a little bit more vulnerable than um, some of the things you could explore in fiction. So I think I'm grateful that I have both to rely on. Yeah, I'm curious about your process, I guess, because as much as I love, you know, working in hybrid forms, I often find that I approach fiction differently than I approach nonfiction if I'm deciding beforehand that it's going to be one or the other, right? Like when I'm writing fiction, I'm very much like you are in that uh, I don't really outline. I'm kind of just like diving in and trying to figure out what the story's about. But in nonfiction, I tend to have a clearer sense of like what the subject or theme might be. And I'm like kind of exploring that more through this kind of real life experience. So I'm curious to hear for you how your process changes when you're writing in one versus the other. Yeah, I think for nonfiction, I definitely have a more immediate sense of the direction the piece will go in. And I think there's a way in which nonfiction kind of unlocks a more linear, uh, almost like mechanical brain. And I can, I can draft more quickly and sort of get out the, the scene or the memory or the story of that piece much faster without even needing to do any like prep work oftentimes. Whereas for fiction, I often need to be primed with a bit of reading. And so for me, that looks like obviously reading other novels that feel like tangentially similar to what I'm trying to write about in, in my own novel. But I think for me, the key is just like needing to read a bit before I then, you know, take to the page or to my laptop to try to start drafting. Uh, I think there's something about reading someone else's language and sort of inhabiting that persona that makes it easier for me to dive back into the novel, which is very much a genre I'm still figuring out as I go. Uh, it's fun and frustrating, of course. But I think it takes a bit more like process work for me before I can dive into it. Whereas nonfiction, I'm usually much more ready to go. You also told me that meditation has become quite essential to your writing process recently. I've personally always thought of writing as a type of meditation in a way where the mind sort of focuses in on the words and allows you to tap into a subconscious part of yourself that is difficult to access otherwise. So for me, it really can be like a Zen-like experience, the act of writing and revising especially. But how do you use meditation as a supplement to this? Yeah, well, I, I absolutely agree that writing and, and even the revision process can feel like its own way of meditating. And you sort of get into those flow states and it just feels like so delicious <laughs> when you get there. Um, 
And I think for me, meditation is, it's a newer discovery for me. Um, but it's something that I've been trying to cultivate as a practice more recently, probably in the last year or so. I think for me, it's just been this really simple routine of when I'm getting ready to write, I will usually meditate for anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes, usually earlier in the day. And that kind of gets me warmed up. And then I might do a little bit of like journaling or free writing because it usually puts me in this really like wonderful, like bright space. And sometimes I'll even take a walk and that even turns into like this meditative moment. And then from there, I think that my, my senses are sort of unlocked in a way that feels like I can kind of put any other preoccupations aside, like work or you know, daily life obligations. And then I, I think I'm like ready to give myself that intimate time to write for, you know, hopefully the next like few hours or whatever time I might have that day. So I think it's become just this really grounding force that's also, um, for me added to a routine, which, uh, is super important for me. I think sometimes when I don't have that routine, the writing gets a bit unruly and then I feel like a little untethered from my creative juices. Um, so I think that meditation has just become one of those, one of those mechanisms almost that I use as like an accountability mechanism. We talked a bit earlier about how important your identity and heritage is to you. And those interests actually took you away from writing for a while. You started out in the MFA at Texas State University, but about midway through that program, you pivoted and got an MA in technical communication, which included a master's thesis on the design of the U.S. Census and its relationship to questions of race and ethnicity. What motivated that change? Yeah. So as an undergrad, I studied creative writing. And uh, when I graduated, I applied to MFA programs and ended up at Texas State to pursue um, an MFA in fiction. And I really enjoyed the program. And I was, you know, meeting a lot of great people and doing a lot of great writing. And I think midway through, though, I started to feel like I was losing steam a bit. And I wasn't able to access my writing in the way that I previously could. And I ended up taking a class sort of randomly um, that was focused on technical communication. And it applied that lens to social media and a lot of other digital platforms. And I got to know that professor who eventually became a mentor really well. And became really fascinated with the research she was doing outside of that course. Texas State's faculty in their technical communication program is amazing. And many of them are doing social justice centric research. And so I think I felt like there was this way in which I was being pulled in that direction. And I thought it might be a way in which I could sort of feel passion again um, and I was just really interested in doing research and getting on board with some of these research areas that I was learning about. Um, and because I had personal questions of identity around race and ethnicity, the U.S. Census became a really interesting case study in that, again, sort of influenced by my mentor. And I eventually decided to switch tracks and pursue an MA in technical communication and then eventually work on a thesis that essentially interrogated how the U.S. Census is designed 
and how its questions often lead to pretty imperfect answers and, and counts of our population, often to the disadvantage of those who are most vulnerable um, and who need the resources that the census is sort of used for. So that was sort of my journey. And then I ended up graduating. And when I graduated with that MA, I found that I started writing creatively more than I had in a long time. It's almost like I was saving up all of that creative energy. And then it sort of turned into this, you know, rush of, of new writing that I was producing and it felt really amazing. So I think I, I feel like I needed that detour in a way to get back to what I think is really the heart of my writing life that still remains within the realms of fiction and nonfiction. Well, you ended up in the end pursuing another degree in creative writing at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, a PhD in English with a creative writing emphasis. WMU also offers an MFA program, which I imagine shares a lot of the same resources as the PhD program. For instance, both offer the chance to focus on poetry, fiction, or playwriting. So what made you choose to return to creative writing and what made you choose Western Michigan? Yeah, so I think that like many people during the pandemic, especially during the the hardest parts of it, there was a lot of soul searching going on. I'd been an adjunct instructor at Texas State for several years, and I had some amazing opportunities while there. And I think eventually I started to feel like I was wanting more than just um, teaching and wanting more than just sort of a typical adjunct life, I suppose. And I decided to apply to programs and just kind of see what happened. I think I was like finally ready. Um, I love teaching, but I think I wanted to do more with that. And I wanted to see where my writing could go with further mentorship and just almost getting a second crack at like the MFA, but through the PhD in a sense. So yeah, I applied and I ended up at Western Michigan and I definitely um, knew it'd be, it would be a bit of a culture shock because I don't really have any connection to the Midwest, but um, it's been really, really great to experience a different region. And I think sometimes leaving your comfort zone uh, can really unlock a lot of new insights about what you thought about that place. You know, I'm still writing about Texas, but I'm finding that um, new questions arise when you're no longer in the place that you're trying to write about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a small town and then moved abroad for a long time. And it was when I had gone far away from home that suddenly I had like this completely different perspective on the place. Were there any reservations about going that far from home? And what was the transition like? I'm sure there were ups and downs. Yeah, I think that, you know, I was moving out there on my own and I didn't know anyone. So that was definitely something that gave me a bit of pause, but I'm, I think I'm pretty good at making friends and, <laughs> and, you know, putting my best foot forward when I'm in a new situation. So, um, you know, I've met some really great people. I think adjusting to the weather has definitely been a, a bit of a challenge, but I've, I've made it through two Michigan winters and I've survived. <laughs> um, I think another reservation that I had 
probably had to do with just figuring out like the cultural differences. Um, I've had the privilege of growing up in Houston and also living in the Austin area for a really long time. So I've been surrounded by a pretty vibrant and diverse community of writers and people. And I think I was a bit fearful of losing that connection. Um, I don't know that I can say that Kalamazoo is as diverse as I, I wish it were sometimes. Um, but I've definitely found ways to find those pockets in the area and also branch out and try to find where those communities are, um, where I feel a bit more at home. So that's been really important to me. Um, but I think it's ultimately been a good process for getting me out of that comfort zone and, um, you know, learning a lot about the Midwest too, which has in its own small ways, uh, has made its way into my writing, which is no surprise, I suppose. When you spend a few years somewhere, it's going to make it into whatever you're doing, whether it's like intentionally or, you know, subconsciously. So that's definitely happening for me. Well, there's not a whole lot of information about the program on the Western Michigan website. So hopefully we can fill in some knowledge gaps for listeners who are interested in the program. I know you have some experience in editing, having co-founded the Porterhouse Review, which is amazing. How important was that experience to your development as a writer? And does Western Michigan offer any similar editing experiences? Yeah, so I have been so lucky to help develop Porterhouse Review and work on it um, and really just be the cheerleader for the grad students that work on the journal. They're ultimately the heroes. But that was a really amazing experience because I helped sort of design the journal with others, of course, kind of from the top down um, in terms of the design, the sort of content and writing we wanted to highlight. So I think that really gave me a new way of thinking about writing um, from both a writer's perspective, but also from an editorial perspective. I think I have started to think more visually about my writing, if that makes sense, because I feel like I pay attention to the way publications look and present the works that they're highlighting and showcasing. So I think there are just these macro and also micro ways in which the editing process changes the way you treat your own writing. And luckily, Western Michigan also has opportunities, uh, specifically through Third Coast Magazine, which has been around for a long time. And I, I've had the fortune of getting the chance to work with Third Coast too. And Porterhouse Review is specifically an online journal. So we only publish work online. And Third Coast is specifically published via print journals and issues. So it's definitely given me some new takeaways in terms of how the print publishing aspect works. And so that's been really awesome just to to learn more about publishing in general and what it takes to um, generate those print issues, which is a whole nother, you know, beast in terms of an editorial schedule and what the reviewing process looks like and sort of dealing with your publisher so that's been really fruitful for me as well. As you mentioned earlier, you have a lot of teaching experience under your belt, having taught at the college level between your MA and PhD. How has it been transitioning back into being a student? Oh, that's a great question. 
You know, I, I really love learning. And I think even when I wasn't in school more recently, I, you know, still found reasons to pick up new skills or just find my way into a dozen tabs with articles that I didn't need to be reading, but just wanted to, you know, so I think there's a way in which my brain is just always curious. So that curiosity in my spirit goes a long way into being a student again. But it's definitely been a little odd. You know, I think, luckily, my cohort and I, uh, we sort of commiserate over that because it's a pretty eclectic and diverse cohort in terms of ages and backgrounds and experience. So I think that's been comforting because we're all sort of coming at it from these different directions. And it feels like we're this scrappy, eclectic bunch who decided to go to grad school for the first time or go back to grad school in my case. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's cool to be back in the classroom as a student. And also see the ways in which that can inform your teaching. I definitely feel like I've picked up a few new tricks as a grad student again and have incorporated some of that into my teaching when I'm working with like undergraduates. So, um, yeah, a bit of a learning curve at first, but then you, you sort of feel like you're happy to be there and you're happy to just be surrounded by all these great minds. And that's certainly how I felt at Western. So do students in the MFA and PhD program at Western Michigan get to teach? They do. Yeah. So the, the course loads are a little bit different or the workloads, I should say. Um, so I think it's typically for PhD students, it is a one, one load. So you teach one course each semester in the fall and the spring. And then I think for MFA students, it's typically a two-one load. So maybe one semester you teach two courses and the other semester you might teach one. So um, you do get teaching experience. And for the PhD students, at least, you um, do get experience teaching creative writing workshops. And there's a lot of other classes that you may get the chance to teach. I know others in my uh, cohort have taught film classes. Um, there's opportunities to teach literature courses. I'm specifically interested in teaching um, a nonfiction course or a nonfiction workshop. And I've been told that there are opportunities for that eventually. So I, I do think that Western does try to play to your strengths and your interests. Um, and I found that they're really proactive in planning for your future beyond your program. Um, so once you leave and once you graduate, um, I've found that in my experience, I've had really great conversations about what, what my life might look like post PhD, what my job search might look like. And they really try to start kind of from the first semester that you enter the program with that intentional planning, which I've really appreciated. And I, I hope that programs do that generally. I, I can't speak for them all, but I can say that Western definitely seems to be keyed into trying to make use of this time and then helping you plan for what happens after that time, depending on what your, you know, career trajectory is or what you want things to look like once you leave that lovely, you know, writing space. This is one of the things that I couldn't really find a ton of information about on the website. Um, 
specifically funding in these programs. So are all PhD students offered like GTA positions with funding? Do you know if that carries over as well to the MFA students? Any information you have, I think would be helpful. Yeah, definitely. So I think that Western's program is fairly small, both in terms of its MFA program and its PhD program. And I think that's because the program really tries to think strategically about its funding. And so I think that from my understanding, they only try to accept applicants and candidates that they will be able to offer full funding to or mostly full funding to, um, which involves a stipend for, for teaching. And so that's, I think, generally how the funding works. And I think there are other opportunities and avenues to receive funding through um, offices and departments outside of the department exclusively. Um, I think the graduate admissions office has some scholarship opportunities for students who may need um, some extra help or, you know, for some reason, if the department can't offer that funding, um, they look to other resources on campus that, you know, may have some funding to, to give out. So, um, I think that I appreciate that transparency because I had some questions upon entering and before saying yes. And, uh, fortunately, I think they're fairly transparent, but also, you know, a smaller program. So I think that they're more willing to be transparent about the funding situation if you are curious and, and want to reach out. Well, if you don't mind me asking, for those who do teach, what, how much is the stipend at Western Michigan? Yeah, so generally it's about 13500 I believe, for the academic year. And again, that's specifically for PhD students. Um, I'm not sure if the MFA is similar or how different, but uh, that accounts for teaching a one-one load, which I think is, you know, pretty nice. I've heard other programs sometimes require a larger teaching load. And um, while I could definitely do that, I do appreciate having the one course a semester to teach. There are also opportunities to lessen your teaching load if you'd like. Uh, For example, if you work with Third Coast, there are specific stipends attached to certain editorial positions. So if you serve as the managing editor or the editor-in-chief, which I've been able to serve as recently, um, you also get paid for that work. And for doing that work, that basically substitutes a course that you might teach for a semester. So there are other ways that I think they try to kind of reward graduate students for their work or sort of compensate them for work that may not be teaching, but uh, is just as, you know, valuable like editorial work. With both an MFA and PhD program in the department, in addition to an MA program, I know you said the program is pretty small, but I imagine having all three of those programs, you probably have a pretty big community of writers that are milling about campus and Kalamazoo. How has the sense of community been in the program and around town? Yeah, so I think that the beauty of the program um, and the various graduate programs within the larger graduate program at Western is that you tend to take classes with MA students, MFA students, and PhD students. And I found them to be really amazing classes. Um, I think everyone is brilliant. And there's no real distinction between, you know, whatever program you're in. I think everyone's there 
with a lot of the same values and interests. And I think it creates these really great opportunities to exchange ideas among writers who are working in different genres and students who may not be there to generate something um, necessarily creative, like a, a manuscript of prose or poetry, but they're doing research within literature. And I've learned a lot from, you know, those students as well and those colleagues. And I think that that also translates really well into Kalamazoo's community because it also has its own literary scene um, and opportunities to attend readings. For instance, there's a really great bookstore in Kalamazoo called This is a Bookstore, which I love. <laughs> and they regularly host readings. Um, and it's become a hub for a lot of writers in the program to sort of go and, you know, have impromptu writing workshops and opportunities to just talk about their work. Uh, so I definitely spend a lot of time there with, you know, people that I, I trust and, and love talking uh, with about writing. And there are a lot of writers that live in the area too, and are associated with not only Western Michigan, but also Kalamazoo College and the Kalamazoo Book Arts Center, which is an amazing space. Um, they essentially dedicate themselves to sharing the craft of bookmaking and they regularly host a reading series as well. And so that's a really unique space that I've fallen in love with since moving to Kalamazoo. Well, that's great. I feel like you're painting a much clearer picture of Kalamazoo and the program and the surrounding area, some of these literary events and the community. I think that'll be really helpful for anyone who's considering going up there. So thank you so much. And before we go, I want to give you the last word. What is one way in which the PhD experience has been different, for better or for worse, from your expectations when applying? Yeah, I think that you go into a program, or at least I did, thinking that I had a very specific vision for the kind of work that I would be generating. And I think ultimately through the courses I've taken, through the people I've met, through my own just exploration and discovery of new interests, I think you realize you start to write what you need to write rather than what you thought you needed to write. And that's certainly where I've landed. I think that the PhD has really unlocked so many new avenues for me. Um, it's introduced me to so many new threads of thinking that I think prior to the program, I might have unlocked myself, but it might have just taken a little longer. So I really do think it's been a journey of transformation. And I think I can say that, you know, midway through my program, I feel like I've definitely grown in my craft and I'm really enjoying the writing that I'm doing. So I, yeah, I think that my best is, advice is to go into a program feeling curious and maybe a little uncertain of what the outcome will be, because that's ultimately probably going to serve you really well. Embrace uncertainty. I like it. I'm glad you found your way back to creative writing and you're enjoying the program. And, and I'm glad you took some time to stop in and talk to us. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jared. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> 